Hi, and thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today we speak to Canada's United Nations Ambassador Bob Ray about the war in Ukraine and why allies can't be bullied by Vladimir Putin's threats. We look at the devastating impact sanctions are already having on the Russian economy and what that could mean for the rest of the world. But first, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians are fleeing the violence that's raining down on their cities and towns in recent days. We speak to one woman who left Kiev with her husband and two young daughters, leaving her father behind, not knowing if or when she'll be able to return. I don't know about you, but I spent much of the weekend following what was unfolding in Ukraine. I mean, keep keep hoping. One keeps hoping that somehow it would get better. And the evidence just showed that it wasn't. Um, it was, of course, beyond inspirational to see Canadians across this country over the weekend. People around the world gathered to show support for Ukraine. Buildings, bridges, monuments lit up in the blue and yellow of the Ukrainian flag. You can sense that for now, at least much of the world has come together to back Ukraine and condemn Russia for its deadly and illegal invasion of its sovereign neighbor. Well, Canada announced today further military aid to Ukraine, uh, sending anti-tank weapons to help Kyiv fight Russia's invasion. Here's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Yesterday, we announced that we would be sending new shipments of military supplies, including body armor, helmets, gas masks, and night vision goggles. Today, we are announcing that we will be supplying Ukraine with anti-tank weapons systems and upgraded ammunition. Of course, this is in addition to our three previous shipments of lethal and non-lethal equipment. Canada also announced it is banning imports of Russian oil. We really don't import much Russian oil anymore, symbolic more than anything, but certainly a good move. Meantime, there were talks today, unbelievably, Ukraine and Russia meeting uh, near the Ukraine-Belarus border, contingencies or contingents from both sides meeting, talking for several hours, no breakthrough. Again, this is the fifth day of Russia's invasion. Meantime, President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine said that Russian troops have intensified shelling of his country, calling it an effort to force his government to make concessions at those very same talks. Here's what that shelling sounded like today again. And of course, a lot of the shelling has been targeting, as far as we can tell, civilian areas residential areas, places where people are. The human cost is already staggering. Ukrainians or Ukraine's interior ministry saying as of today, 352 civilians killed, 14 of them kids, some 1,700 injuries, 116 of them minors. Uh, The prosecutor of the International Criminal Court in The Hague today announced that he will launch an investigation into possible war crimes or crimes against humanity in Ukraine. There are also lots of people on the move. 580,000 people have fled already into neighboring countries, says the UN. And we've been seeing so many heartbreaking images of families split apart. Of course, the men under martial law between 18 and 60 have to stay. So you're seeing families, wives, kids, the elderly moving when the men stay behind. I've been thinking a lot about this, about what it's like to flee your home, leaving your loved ones behind, not knowing if or when you'll ever return. Ksenia Kizniak is an actress and lifestyle blogger, wife, mom to two girls, age six and eight. Life was pretty normal about a week ago. Now she's fled Kiev to protect her kids from the fight. She's with her husband. Her husband will be returning. Her father's still back in Kiev. She joins me now with more about what it must be like to have to leave home under these circumstances. She joins me from Western Ukraine. Kiznia, welcome to the show and thank you so much for taking the time to be here tonight. 
Thank you so much, Ben. As I said before, it's really important for us, for Ukrainians, to tell the world what's happening with our cities, with our country. I understand, of course, that the circumstances with which you left, um, the city was already under attack. Um, tell me a bit about those last 48 hours in Kiev and what made you decide to leave. Okay. Well, uh, like on February 24th, we woke up uh, because of the sound of explosions uh, in Kiev. And first, we didn't understand what's happening. We thought like maybe it's something, something, but not the war. And then we read the news and we realized that Russia attacked Ukraine and that there are missile attacks. And so we spent the first day in our apartment. We didn't come out. Mostly we were hoping that this is kind of a bad joke and everything is going to end up quickly. So we didn't even tell our children what's happening. We just told them, you know, we're having a holiday. We're not going to school or to children's gardens. We're just going to spend some time at home. And then the night came and we realized that it's really dangerous just to fall asleep because we didn't know if it's going to be some more missile attacks or not. We slept with our with my husband, like he slept one hour, then I slept one hour. And we are, we are reading the news all the time to know if there are some more attacks or explosions uh, in our area. And then in the morning, we heard the air alert. So that meant that we had to go down to the basement to keep safe or go down to the subway. We decided to go to the basement of our house where already were some of our neighbors. And we spent there a couple of hours. Sometimes we were going up just to hear that there are still sounds of explosions somewhere. And at that moment, uh, we realized that we have to save our children and we have to take them away from Kiev. Because, like, you know, the situation was tense between Russia and Ukraine for a long time. And one day, like maybe a few months ago, we were talking with my husband about what are we going to do if the war starts? It was like, you know, like, like when you're talking about something that is never going to happen, but still you have to talk about like a plan, not even B or it's like C or D plan for like something that's never going to happen, but it did happen. So uh, the plan was to take our children somewhere, maybe in Poland and Hungary, somewhere from Ukraine to take them to the border and keep them safe. And then my husband he wanted to go back to Kiev, which is still is going to happen tomorrow. So when we when we heard the explosions again and again, we just took some of our things. I had to call my father to tell him that we're leaving. And when I called him, I heard that he just said, Ksenia, we have shooting here. And then I heard the sounds of shootings in the phone. And then he put the phone down. And so I could call him only like in an hour. He, he was okay. But still like that moment when your father is telling you we have shooting here and you exactly hear that shooting. It was, it was, it was really, really hard. So we just put some things in our car and we, we went from Kiev. Uh, we were driving, driving from Kiev. We spent like about two days driving um, we had one night in city Rovna. Uh, one of um, our far friends let us um, l l let us uh, sleep in her apartment. 
And there in Rovno, there also was missile attacks and air alerts. So we had to go down to the basement like two or three times at the night. And the next morning we left again and we were driving to Svalava, where we are now. We spent like 16 hours driving. We got in a traffic jam when we were driving like for eight hours. And it was, it took about eight hours to drive um, 60 kilometers, I guess, because of the traffic jams and all of the people are leaving, uh, are trying to leave, trying to go abroad to Poland or to Hungary, Slovakia, Romania and other countries that seems to be more safe than our country right now. So we went here to Svalava. Here we are in a small hotel in the mountains. It's pretty safe here because it's far from the border with Russia. We spent here like two nights and um, there was like a group um, group of people who help uh, refugees and there was one woman who helped us. She gave us the um, possibility to live in her house uh, for like for how long we want. So tomorrow we're leaving to another small city. It's called um, Beregova. And we're going to stay in her house as long as we need. And my husband will, he will come back to Kiev. So. Mm. Yeah, that must be, I can't even, I can't even imagine what that would be like to, to, and I know your father is still in Kiev as well. Yes. My father is still in Kiev and, I'm, I'm I'm calling him like ten times a day, <laughs> and I'm asking him if he's okay. And I'm, uh, I, he like is telling me, well, you know, it's pretty quiet right now. Or you know, yeah, there was a lot of explosions this day, so we had to go down to the basement many times. And like there was, um, there's no uh, food in um, in stores, or well, th- there is food, but it's really few of it. And they have to stand in the lines for an hour or two just to buy some food. And I'm really worried about him. But he said, like, it's my city, it's my country. I have no other place to go. And I understand him really because I would love to stay in Kiev. But still, I have children and their safety is my first, is my main duty. And my husband is leaving to Kiev because he wants to. He wants to help those men and those uh, military who uh, who's protecting our city. So tomorrow I will have to <laughs> I will have to say goodbye for I hope not for long because I'm really sure he's going to be okay. I'm really sure about it. I'm back with Kizniak. She's speaking to me from Western Ukraine now, where she is with her husband and two children uh, after leaving Kiev um, late last week, fleeing the war. After attacks began on Kiev, her father is still in Kiev tonight. Her husband will be returning there uh, shortly, and they will be staying safer in, on safer ground in the west of the country. Uh, you know, this, I mean, it, just the story you've been telling is so is is so it's so gripping and so tragic in so many ways to see families broken apart. Um, what can the rest of the world do to help? I know this is a broad question, but what would you like to see countries like Canada doing to help you? I'm not a politic or I'm not a military person, but I really think that we do need help because we're smaller than Russia. Although I'm sure that our people and our men are much more honest, much more strong. They're really strong and our people are strong. 
but I do think we need we will need <laughs> a lot of help to make our country reborn after what's happening and we need some help to win this war because the war is real it's not like kind of a small conflict or something like that our cities are going down our like our cities are under missile attacks our people are dying and that's not a joke it's like world war ii because everything that's happening it's like stories from my grandma or grandfather which passed world war so i never thought that something like this could happen to us right now in 2022 in the middle of europe so we we'll need the whole world to stand with us we need your help if you can help us with money if you can help us with people if you can help us with anything that would be good actually yeah what have you what have you told your kids about what happens now i mean how how does one even begin to have that conversation that was really hard because like the first day when we were when we were hoping that it's going to end up quickly we didn't tell them they were you know like we were so tensed we were so scared and they were just playing around just watching some uh, movies and laughing and dancing it was so weird to see them so calm and happy when we were so scared but the next day we realized that we can't just <laughs> we can't just be quiet because they have to know what's going on the situation was really serious and we had a lot of things to do the way was really hard and they had to understand what's going on so that moment when we just took them uh, we, we asked them to sit near us and we were holding them by the hand and we just had to tell like girls you know that's what's happening it's not a simple holiday when you're just not going to school because the war started and they just like didn't understand that at the first time they said yeah okay war but what about us and we had to explain to them that we are in danger and we have to leave our home and they were asking but like when we already went out like we were driving uh on, on our way they were asking but we can't come back because like i forgot my doll or i forgot my book and i realized that i'm not sure we will will we ever come back to kiev because nobody knows what's going to happen then i'm not sure if they're going to ever see their home again i'm not sure if i will see my home again ever but i really hope this will happen i really hope that we're going to come back to kiev and that we're going to celebrate the victory because that's what we all want what happens in the next little while for you i i know that that primarily you, you want to make sure your children are safe um your husband's going back to kiev um what do you see happening you're going to settle into this new home i i guess you'll try and create as a normal existence for your kids as possible yes i i think we're going to stay at that house that uh, um is in um berigovo um it's really close to the border and probably there will be some people who are going to be refugees and maybe we can help them because right now there's a huge lines on all the borders of the ukraine like people have to stand for days to cross the border and they really need help and we're going to be near there so maybe we can help them with foods or with like uh, i don't know anything to cross the border maybe we can help 
some were some more refugees because like people right now are so friendly to each other in Ukraine. <laughs> they they have such a big hearts. It's amazing actually the way we help each other. And uh, so yes, I think I'm gonna stay here on the western and the west of Ukraine with my children and just and just wait for what's gonna happen if the situation is going to be worse so maybe we will cross the border maybe we will have to do that but i hope we can stay here because it's our like our land our our country and we really don't want to leave for now i really hope that we will have a chance to come back to kiev because i really appreciate your time obviously we all wish safety for your father for your husband for you for your kids for your country Thank you so much, Ben. I don't know if you've been watching, there have been a lot of fireworks at the UN in New York since Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, Canada's ambassador to the UN addressed the General Assembly today ahead of a vote expected this week to isolate Russia by deploring its, quote, aggression against Ukraine and demanding that Russian troops withdraw. Here's Bob Ray. We as members of the United Nations have the chance to stand up to stand up in defense of a free people and to rebuke the evil notion that might makes right. And now we must all step up and stand up. Of course, with Russia on the Security Council, difficult to get a sanction through, but that hopefully will happen in the General Assembly. Canada's UN Ambassador, to Bo- to UN Ambassador Bob Ray joins me now. Welcome to the show. Thank you for your time. Pleasure. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. It's been, I mean, the UN is a place we picture where this sort of crisis would be discussed and, and, and hopefully resolved. Uh, a lot unfolded today. What What is the latest from the UN in terms of uh, negotiations over what's unfolding in Ukraine? Well, the negotiations are happening directly between the Ukrainians and, and uh, the Russians. And uh, they, they had a meeting in uh, in northern Ukraine, uh, they uh, uh, agreed to go back to capital. We'll see what uh, what happens as a result of, of uh, reporting back. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's uh, it, it was a courageous move, I think, by the by the Ukrainian leader to, to uh, ask for direct conversations. I I think everyone recognizes what's at stake. Uh, but the real issue for me is what chance do we have of getting a deal? Uh, with a Russia that doesn't want to recognize the the autonomy and the independence of uh, of Ukraine, it's uh, it's very difficult. Uh, Mr. Ray, you did mention that and have mentioned that just the chilling aspect of those words when one country negates the existence of another. It's something we've seen in history time and time again. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's a, it's it's like everything else in life, right? If you if you negate the existence of the other. Uh, then uh, it's hard to know what kind of a relationship you can have because they're they're not admitting that you're a, an autonomous, independent person. And uh, I think it's very clear that from Mr. Putin's speeches and from what he's had to say that he's attempting to define Ukraine out of existence. And and I think that's what makes it so, as you put it, chilling, uh, and also so hard to combat because you say you got to negotiate. Well, it's pretty hard to negotiate with somebody who doesn't recognize you have a right to exist. 
When the UN was established, I think the idea was that this would be a forum whereby these sorts of international crises could be debated uh, and discussed. Listening to Russia today, again, it seems like there are two completely different stories here, completely different narratives. How do you bridge that gap? Or do you? Well, sometimes it takes time to break it down. Uh, fortunately, right now, because of the, the hotness of the war, we don't have the time. Um, we have to save lives here. We have to try to make sure that more people aren't killed uh, and that uh, we can get back to a discussion rather than a war. But it's tough because the Russians started a war. And obviously they started a war, I think, on the assumption that it, the rest of the world would look the other way or it would happen very quickly. Uh, but I think we, I think Mr. Putin has underestimated the situation. I think he's underestimated the resilience, the resistance of the Ukrainian people and the army. I think he's um, underestimated the seriousness of Europe uh, and the European countries. Uh, and he's underestimated most of the UN. So you put all these things together and he's made a terrible miscalculation. And the question is, well, how, how does a person come to terms with that? And I'm, I don't know whether he can or not, or whether the Russian government can or not. Uh, but it's clear that we have to find a different basis for uh, for a peaceful solution. Have you been surprised by both the speed and the unity that the diplomatic, or at least the diplomatic effort on the part of the West has shown over the last four or five days? It, it seems like things have been much more unified and much more active than we've seen in crises in the past, including Crimea in 2014. Well, I think the key word is the key words are public opinion. I think I think leaders are responding to what they sense is a very powerful feeling among their people. Uh, we've seen demonstrations uh, right across Europe and the United States and Canada, and in many many other parts of the world, including Russia, where um, literally millions of people have come out on the streets. Uh, and this is partly a reflection of the impact of social media. Uh, and it's had an immediate impact on, on galvanizing a public and then, frankly, governments that are frequently catching up with their, uh, with their people. And I, I see this, I think we see it every day. We see it in real time. It's quite extraordinary. And I, I just hope it's enough. I hope it's enough uh, and, and happens quickly enough that we're able to, uh, to save Ukraine. What has the atmosphere been like within the UN itself? Obviously, what we've seen from outside is the exchanges between the Russian ambassador, or particularly the Ukrainian ambassador, the very harsh words that he's had for his Russian counterpart. Uh, what has the atmosphere been like in the UN? Well, I'm told by people who have been around for many years that it's not unusual for <coughs> harsh words to be spoken. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people who feel that uh, you know, diplomacy is always just uh, completely polite. Uh, my view is it's a time for plain speaking. <clears throat> I think the public that's watching expects us to be comprehensible and plain and direct. I don't think they want us to be tied up in gobbledygook and uh, formalities. I mean, both both individuals um, are very blunt. Um, uh, their speaking styles are different. The Ukrainian ambassador is more is more emotional, uh, more passionate, as, as one would expect and anticipate. Um, the Russian ambassador is more, uh, more speaking from you know, the hard-edged position of the Russian 
government, but he also knows he he's uh, he's his the position that he's taking is not one that's popular or or well received in the in the hall because people people are people don't boo him as as one would in a political meeting. You know, Russia's playing the part of Voldemort in these discussions. There has been talk from Ukraine, of course, of, of trying to force Russia out of out, out off the Security Council, at least, uh, given the optics of the current situation where they're re- presiding over a council that's essentially condemning them. Yeah, they won't be on. The, they won't be chairing the Security Council past midnight tonight. Right. So that's that issue's moot. Uh, but it is, I think, in most circumstances. I don't know most high school debating clubs, somebody who, who's who got a direct interest in something isn't allowed, isn't allowed to chair a meeting. It's sort of like, you know, everybody appreciates that that's the, that would be the rule. Somebody should else should take the chair. Russians didn't do that. Russians maintained the chair, uh, even though they were um, the aggressor. Um, but that's what they do. They play hardball, and uh, obviously they're playing a very uh, brutal uh, and fit, you know, very, very difficult kind of hardball in uh, in Ukraine itself. Many people are getting killed as a result of their tactics and as a result of their approaches. I'm back with Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray. We've been discussing ongoing talks at the UN over the war in Ukraine. Um, Mr. Ray, the, there will be a General Assembly vote. Um, what do you expect to come from that? And, and what kind of message might it send Russia? And how will Russia respond, do you believe? Well, I think we can we can take the last one for granted. I think Russia will simply will simply dismiss the vote and say you people don't understand and you have no understanding of what we're going through and and the, you know for them for Russia this is just a, sort of a, a difficult uh, but not fatal exercise they have to go through all the time with the United Nations. But I think that the, what I think they're underestimating is is the power of opinion in their own country and the power of opinion and sentiment in in neighboring countries. Uh, Russia is very isolated. In particular, I would say Mr. Mr. Putin is very isolated. And that isolation will lead to serious challenges for any political leader. When you're doing something that I I think he underestimated how unpopular this would be in his own country. Um, And although Russia is effectively a dictatorship, even dictators rely on public opinion. Sometimes they just rely on public indifference. But the reality is, is that a population that's suddenly seeing interest rates go up, doubled up to 20%, uh, sees trading relationships disrupted, cost of their food, cost of everything going up dramatically, exponentially, their currency worth nothing. Many companies will shut, they'll be unemployed, be out of work. Uh, th- this is a very. This is going to prove to be a very painful crisis for the Russians, and it's not one they can quickly overcome. So, I, I think this will directly impact the popularity of Mr. Putin. I, I believe that, and I, I think that's that's something that everybody should keep their eye on as we, as we go forward. So, what the Russian government says, frankly, is less important than what the Russian people decide to do as a result of the, the price of the isolation that is being forced on them by the conduct of their own leader. We are seeing some pretty astounding and, and horrific numbers, to be frank, about people already fleeing. Um, 
this is clearly a, already a humanitarian catastrophe. How, what have you been hearing and how, does, how prepared are we to try to absorb what's happening in Ukraine right now? So when this happened, when the physical invasion happened, you've got all, all of the uh, move to, to, for pe- all of the incentive for people to just get the hell out of Dodge. And that's exactly what, what right now the calculation is about half a million people. And even that number goes up 100, 200,000 a day. And they're, they're planning on 4 million people. So this is going to be a dramatic transformation of the humanitarian situation in, in Ukraine. In some ways, bigger than, as far as Europe is concerned, bigger than, bigger than Syria, because many of the refugees were absorbed, the Syrian refugees were absorbed in Turkey. But this is going to be a huge exodus and a, and a huge movement of people across, across Europe. Uh, and around the world, so it's um, it's 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 devastating. You've said a few times that this isn't just about Ukraine; that there's a lot more at stake here, diplomatically, geopolitically. How serious, if this is to continue, and Russia is to continue on with its invasion and its war, you feel like that you've said that this sends messages around the world to other countries who may be feeling, who may be looking at other pieces of territory, they would like the same way, that there needs to be a clear message to Russia here. Well, I, I think this is a key thing, is that if a, if a big power can, or any power can get away with this and say, you know, we did it, so what are you going to do about it? And if the answer from the world is, well, not very much, then uh, it does create huge problems, huge sources of instability for uh, for the rest of the world. Uh, the Singapore ambassador today said, you know, look, we're an island state right next to, to, a, to a big country, Malaysia, uh, that we're not a member of, uh, we're not part of, and we're next door to Indonesia. If those countries, and I'm not saying they're thinking about it, but those countries said, hey, why don't we just take over Singapore? Well, that would create a, a, a huge chaotic situation. So we need to understand what's at stake for, uh, and particularly in a world where borders and boundaries sometimes have historical origins that don't, may not in today's world make a lot of sense. And, and countries might say, well, if, if they can get away with just doing it this way, why wouldn't we do the same thing? Um, but what's, I think, to start out, to go back to where we started, what's most troublesome about this is that it starts from a, from a conversation, a narrative, if you like, from President Putin, which is really a narrative of a declaration of non-existence. Uh, he said that, you know, the state is artificial. The Ukrainian people and the Russian people are the same. And this is the language of the abuser. And, and when that happens, it, it becomes very difficult to know uh, how to find safety except to flee. And that's what many, many Ukrainians are doing. About a tenth, you know, by the calculation from the UNHCR today, about 10% of the population of Ukraine is is going to be on the road, which is quite extraordinary. We've seen some pretty, again, some pretty um, unfamiliar rhetoric from Vladimir Putin about nuclear weapons. Um, where does this Where does this go from here in the short term, do you think? As we say, it'll go nowhere because, I mean, it's a terrible threat to make. Uh, it's clearly irrational. Uh, there was a rationality to uh, the declaration by the five 
by five of the nuclear powers in January, where they all agreed, including Russia, uh, including China, they all agreed that nobody's going to win a nuclear war. So we're committed to to not using what we have. We're committed to not using it. And and uh, to go from that to a point of of uh, giving orders to your army to be on nuclear alert is, I think, a profoundly irrational moment for Vladimir Putin and for his his government. And uh, I think the point for the rest of us is don't be intimidated by that. Don't be don't be scared off doing what needs to be done. But it also means that we have to share with the Russian people a sense that this is a road to madness. If uh, people, somebody like Vladimir Putin, the president of a permanent member of the United Nations and, and a nuclear power, um, because he's not happy with somebody, says, well, I'm going to I'm going to put you, put everybody on nuclear alert, and then just see what happens. I mean, it's this is this is lawlessness of the worst kind. And I I think I do feel that most members of the United Nations understand that and will not will not put up with it. Bob Ray, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. Good to talk to you, Ben. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, as the Russians continue to drop bombs on Ukraine, the West pretty much imploded the Russian economy to some extent today. They woke up to face the impact of severe sanctions uh, placed for its invasion of Ukraine. The ruble fell by around 30% to record lows. It climbed a little bit at the end of the day. Russia's central bank has made an emergency emergency decision to hike interest rates from 9.5% to 20%. There were long lineups at bank machines in Russia today as people tried to withdraw currency as it lost value. Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland here in Canada says Russia was warned. And to our Russian counterparts, who are today struggling vainly to prop up a ruble in freefall, let me say, we warned you. Twelve days ago, I urged the governor of the Russian Central Bank not to allow her government to launch an illegal and unprovoked war. The West's economic sanctioned I warned, would be swift, coordinated, sustained, and crushing. They are, and they will continue to be. Joining me now is Eric Miller, president of the Rideau Potomac Strategy Group and fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Eric, thanks so much for being here tonight. Thanks for having me, Ben. So, I mean, we expected this was going to be a very bad Monday for the Russian economy. Just how bad was it? Oh, it was very bad. As you noted in your report, the rubles in freefall. People are struggling to get money out of ATM machines. Uh, Apple Pay and other services are shut down, causing chaos for those wanting to ride the metro in Moscow. And of course, uh, you've seen uh, significant uh, separations of Russia uh, from the global economy and from some key export markets, and therefore, uh, this will have a downstream effect on jobs and money coming into the uh, Kremlin's coffers. We also saw some divestment, I guess, from BP and Shell, some of the big players in Russia, big foreign players at least. Absolutely. Uh, they've uh, each decided to sever, as well as a major Norwegian uh, company on the refining side, have decided to sever their business activities in Russia. Uh, ostensibly taking major hits to their balance sheet, although I hope for their sake they had uh, some risk insurance that could 
help to cover it. But what this means is that the Russian oil sector will be that much more bereft of advanced technology. And well, for now, at least uh, the sanctions on Russia's oil sector uh, are not there because basically it's non-oil exports that are, uh, are affected. Uh, Russia will find itself in a position over the medium term where its oil sector will become less competitive and fewer people will want to take those barrels. Eric, I mean, do you see this? I've never seen something happen so quickly in the global economy, but do you see this having an impact on the kinds of calculations that Russia can make as far as the war is concerned? Well, uh, what you've also seen in addition to the economic piece is the Europeans in particular stepping up. You've seen some lethal aid coming from Canada and from the US, but in an extraordinary move, you saw the German government announce a hundred billion euro increase in its defense budget and essentially swearing off its policy of pacifism. You've seen the Dutch, the Germans, the Swedes, and even the EU itself providing weapons. The EU provided fighters. And so, well, the economic strategy Uh, is certainly something that is having an effect and that people are noticing. The fact that the Europeans in particular are stepping up and are providing material uh, to help Ukraine prosecute its defense is something which is really extraordinary. And so, in essence, forms a bit of a one-two punch. Russia is still one of the top, I think it's the 11th largest economy in the world. When you Uh clamp down on an economy of that size, even though it's exports, you know, you don't see a lot of their exports on our shelves. But when you clamp down on an economy that size, what sort of domino effect does it have around the world? So you take the wheat sector, for example, Russia is the third largest wheat producer in the world. Ukraine is the eighth largest wheat producer. And they sell an awful lot of their wheat to the Middle East. So Egyptians, for example, eat twice the amount of bread per capita than the average person in the world. And what we saw during the, um, during the, uh, the prequel to the Arab Spring was a huge surge in food prices, 2008, 2009, into 2010. And so when that grain doesn't flow out of the Black Sea ports into the Middle East, grain prices go up and people get hungry in the Middle East and therefore become restive. And so we have not even begun to see the downstream ramifications here. Certainly the price of $100 oil is something that everyone in North America sees and feels at the pumps. And there's no doubt that 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 can go higher. And the reason that the United States uh, in particular has not favored taking Russian barrels out of the world oil supply is because you would see oil hit an extraordinary level because there would just be such a huge shortage in available supply. And so over time, there will be some adjustments there, but Western consumers will feel a lot of pain. And of course, if you're in Europe, there's always the risk that Russia, which is a major supplier of natural gas, will choose to cut off uh, major countries in Western Europe as a uh, as a strategy to try to pressure them to stop their support of Ukraine. I'm speaking with Eric Miller, president of the Rideau Potomac Strategy Group and a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. So if I hear you correctly, there's still a lot of, there's a lot of a back and forth to be had, even on the economic side at this point. Oh, absolutely. Uh, certainly, uh, you have seen the West do extraordinary things. Essentially, Uh, You saw Minister Freeland, whose clip you played earlier, was integral in cutting off 
the access of the Russian central bank to its reserves, many of which are held abroad. You've seen the high profile move to remove many Russian banks from the SWIFT system, which essentially means that the Russian payment network, uh, if it touches in any way, shape or form the outside world, uh, are, are really undermined. And so I think really what you will see, though, is if this war continues, and you've seen the video of miles long columns of Russian armor heading toward Kiev, and certainly their first strategy has not worked. And so Russia, we've seen them dropping cluster bombs on apartment buildings today. They will get more um, ferocious in terms of how they prosecute the war. And it may be that the, uh, that the Europeans and North America and the Japanese and others decided to decide to step up and cut off Russian energy supplies. After all, as one European analyst said today, spring is coming and we may not need that gas as much. Canada did ban uh, imports of Russian oil today. I know we don't import much of it, but there's been a whole debate going on now about why Canada can't be a supplier of safe energy to places like Europe uh, to wean themselves off Russia. What do you make of that whole debate? Well, the reason why Canada is not a supplier of safe energy to Europe has to do with pipeline opposition in Ontario and Quebec. Really, as a country, Canada has failed to take full advantage of its natural resource gifts. And this move that we've seen in the sclerosis in interprovincial politics around infrastructure construction that would see energy from Alberta and Saskatchewan and natural gas from BC flowing to both coasts has really hampered Canada's ability to come to Europe's aid in a time of need. And you've seen a significant amount of imports of oil from uh, not only Russia, but also from Venezuela and eastern Canada. And it makes no sense why Canada would want to support Vladimir Putin and Nicolas Maduro and not uh, its fellow citizens in western Canada. And so I think Canadians need to take a really hard look and say, if we want to be a supplier of reliable energy, that supports freedom in the world, we are going to have to put pipeline infrastructure that allows us to get our landlocked resources to market. Certainly not something we would see happen quickly, though. I imagine we can't come to Europe's aid anytime soon. Uh, you would have to cobble together some things. I mean, I think in, in some respects, uh, you could send some oil supplies there. I think, honestly, the U.S. out of the Marcellus Shale in Pennsylvania is in a better position to send in particular natural gas to Europe. In the last few years, Germany has built a number of new natural gas import terminals, which would become very useful in the event of importing natural gas from the United States. But again, Canada's indecision when it comes to energy infrastructure has taken itself out of the game. And I think it's, it behooves Canadians uh, in all parts of the country to have a serious look at themselves and say, is this where we want to be? Do we want to be dependent on buying from others or do we want to be suppliers of energy that support freedom in the world? Eric Miller, I, I believe you've joined a fairly growing chorus when it comes to, uh, to having a good hard look at that. Um, thank you so much again for your time and your insight tonight. Thank you. Have a good evening. You too.